Colossians chapter 1. If you've been tracking with us, you'll remember we are going through the, the book of Colossians. And uh, we began by seeing Paul uh, present to the Colossians what they had to be thankful for in terms of the gospel growth that was taking place, uh, the growth that, that God was giving to the, his people there at the city of Colossae, the assurance of what they had in Christ. And this is, of course, to counteract uh, the effect that some were having to cause them to believe they needed something more than Christ. They were hearing a false teaching and Paul was coming in to correct that. And he um, launched out of that then to show in a very uh, cosmic way uh, the, the glory of Christ above all things, even creation itself, that he was not just man, he was God in the flesh, that he was the creator and sustainer of all things, that all of creation is both made by him and is made for him. And from there, he, he closed the circle to speak about uh, his church, about how Christ is the one who redeemed us from sin, who has brought us together as one new man, so that he is not just preeminent over creation, but he is preeminent over his people. And then Paul told the Colossians again of this salvation that they themselves had in verses 21 through 23. And now Paul closes the gap even more. He draws the circle in. And in uh, these verses and on to the first few uh, verses of chapter 2 that we'll look at next week, Paul talks about Christ's preeminence over his own life. It begins to show the work that Christ has done in calling him to be an apostle, the kind of ministry that he has had as a result of that. And so that is what we want to look at this morning, uh, this, this ministry of Paul. And we'll see why in just a minute. I begin reading at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this reason, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. May God bless and prosper the reading of his word. Here Paul lays out the characteristics of his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And though what he says is uniquely his own life and ministry, there is nevertheless here implications for all of us. For in serving in this way, Paul establishes a pattern for establishing and strengthening the church. He sets a pattern for all Christian ministry. Therefore, what Paul describes here in, of him, in and of himself and what he is doing and what he has done, we should see as an example for our own lives and how we should be seeking to have the ministry that we are involved in line up and sync up to uh, Paul's own life and ministry. And in thinking about how to, uh, to summarize this, how to make it meaningful, basically there are uh, five marks, five 
things that should that should be a part of our ministry as Christians. Five things that we should be doing. Here's the first one. As Christian ministers, we should serve the word. We should serve the word. Paul speaks of the, the church of which he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. From the outset, Paul, it's clear the ministry that he has is not his own ministry. That is to say, he didn't just wake up one day and say, I think this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I thought through with my life coach, my goals, and we formulated the plan, and this is how we're going to approach it. That's not how it happened. Uh, Paul says that what he does as an apostle was given to him as a stewardship from God. That means God entrusted him with this task of serving the church. And that's exactly what it is, a ministry of service. Uh, If you've been around here for a length of time and heard uh, sermons on other occasions, heard us talk, you will know that uh, the word that we get for the office of deacon uh, is really just the same word that means servant. Uh, Not in the sense of slave, as in other places where we are slaves of Christ, but those who serve, uh, those who would even serve tables, as it were, that kind of practical service. And here, Paul uses the same word to describe himself as a minister. We could have just as easily translated this, uh, that Paul was a servant of the church according to the stewardship of God. But what is he meant to serve? He says he's meant to serve the scriptures. I became a minister to make the word of God fully known. Here is the heart and soul of all Christian ministry. Anything that is done in service to the church begins with this goal to make the word of God fully known. And this is not just for growing the church internally in terms of uh, deepening the knowledge base of those who are already here, those that are already a part of the church in terms of doctrine and training. It's also the way in which people are brought into the church of the living God. Making the word of God fully known is how you grow the church in terms of connecting people to God, whether that is bringing them in for the first time through what we would call evangelism or whether that is growing in and deepening them and training them on for living their life as a Christian. You know, just a few months ago, I heard a pastor say that he felt like his church had, had, enough, had enough teaching and training, they just needed to get out there and do something. Well, I'm not sure I agree with, with that in the way he meant it, but I think there could be some truth to that. In certain circumstances, it may be to say, uh, you know, not so much we've had too much Now we do something else. No, keep the training. But to say, why isn't the teaching and the training having its full effect? Why aren't we out there doing something? That way would be a better way to phrase it, a better question to ask. Maybe the training that we were receiving, the teaching is not right. Maybe it's not been rooted from the desire to make known fully the word of God. And it's just come from uh, people's own ideas and their own thoughts and their own teaching. Maybe it's not rooted in the truth of God. Maybe people have been negligent in the way they've handled the word, and so they've not been able to to see clearly how and what they ought to be doing. Or it could just be that we take the word of God for granted. Maybe it's the fact that it sits on our desks and in our cars and next to us on the nightstand, more like a sacred talisman that's meant to bring us luck and ward off evil than it is to be opened and read and feasted on. That wasn't what Paul was about for himself or for his ministry. He was about making the word of God fully known. That means that he never took the scriptures for granted. 
He opened them up in a way that was meant to benefit the people of God, to, to, to drive those truths home deep down into their very souls. This is the essence of his ministry, and it should be for ours as well. Not just when I say that, understand, I don't mean ours as in the ministries of the church. I mean that, but I mean more than that. I mean it should be the essence of your ministry as individual ministers in and for the church of God. Now, I'll get back to that in a minute. What it means that all of us should be ministers. But for now, just ask yourself this. How well do you know the word of God? If something were to happen and you were to lose the Bible or part of the Bible, would you miss it? If your Bible was damaged, would you know which chapters of Jeremiah were burned up and gone? If you only had access to half the Psalms, would you know which ones were missing? If, if you were only given one of the Gospels and it didn't have a title, maybe the front and the back was gone, so you didn't know who wrote it, would you be able to tell who wrote it? Because you've read all four so often. If the answer is no to those things, then... then that means, particularly if we have been sitting in church for years and years and years, we've got decades clocked in, maybe we're taking the word of God for granted. Maybe, maybe our goal does not match up with Paul's, and that is to make the word fully known, not only to ourselves, but to others. Recently, a pastor in Florida was reviewing a new student study Bible, and he gave the Bible excellent marks. He said it was the, the notes were great, the study helps were wonderful. We should go out and buy it. But then he added this appropriate, even poignant word at the end of his review. He said this, we are living in a day and time when we own a lot of Bibles, but the Bible does not own us. My encouragement to you is to reject the culture of biblical illiteracy and don't simply own another Bible. Have the Bible own you. Take this incredibly well-bound and aesthetically pleasing Bible and graffiti it with your tears and your sweat. Make your labors of mind and heart test the binding of this Bible and leave it with a strip of duct tape or two. Yes, get it good. Good enough to preoccupy your mind and thoughts of God and you will never regret the hours you spent listening to God as His Spirit makes His truths come alive to your soul. I think that probably one of the goals, one of the ambitions of the Christian is to wear out a Bible about every five to ten years. I don't mean say I need a new translation, I, knew, I need some new study guides. I mean read that thing to the point that pages are falling out, the binding is ripped, there are stains on it, whether because every morning we're drinking our coffee with it, and we get excited and, and shout hallelujah and spill on it, or because we are weeping and, and, and staining out the ink on the page. I think it would give an indicate not only of our priority for life and ministry, but also our orientation towards God himself. Paul says he wants to make the, the word of God fully known because that is what he has been commissioned to do. That is the stewardship he has from God. And in verses 26 to 27, he explains more specifically what that means. We are not only to make known fully the word of God, uh, but we are also to proclaim the Son. We're to proclaim the Son. Paul says, I am to make the word of God fully known, that is, 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. You know, several cults in Paul's day based their beliefs on this idea of mysterious spiritual knowledge. And Paul uses that word here twice, mystery. And he uses it a lot in his letters. And it stands in contrast, his use of it, uh, it stands in contrast to the way in which it was thought of by these mystery religions. That The idea was, look, you know, we alone have the special secret knowledge to make you right with the gods, to make your life great. But we don't give it to you all at once. You, 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 you come in, you, you join the religion, and you get some of it. And as you increase in your support of the religion and your involvement, then you advance to higher and higher levels of knowledge where you, you, you are taken in with the priest and, and given more explanation and more explanation so that eventually you, you reach the full attainment of the mystery. It becomes revealed to you and you have spiritual enlightenment. In many ways, it's like Scientology and the Freemasons today. I mean, that's basically how their quote-unquote religion is set up. And Paul says, you know, that's not the kind of mystery that, that I've been entrusted with. When Paul talks about mystery, he's not talking about something that's hidden and needs to be revealed. He is talking about something that once was hidden, but now has been revealed. There are no secrets in Christianity. Paul says, it once was a mystery, and now I am called, along with the rest of the church, to proclaim the reality of that mystery. So Paul is never having secret meetings in a back room somewhere. In 1 Corinthians, he knows that, that lost people uh, were almost expected to be at the gathering of the church. Not that the gatherings were oriented toward them, uh, but they should at least be intelligible to them. He says there's no secret meetings. If we have a belief, it is known to all because it is a belief about Jesus Christ. What was once unknown and mysterious is now been revealed. And it is the reality of his Messiahship, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. Israel was God's chosen people. And they knew the promises of a coming, coming Savior that were given to them, a king who would save them from their sins. And there's, there were hints of so much more. In the fullness of time, God showed what that fullness was, what the so much more was when he fulfilled it, not in a human king, but in his own son, Jesus Christ, who came to be the Messiah, the Savior of his people. He did this by living a perfect life before God on behalf in the place of his people. And then he died as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. Dying, he rose again in glory on the third day, the perfect Lord ruling and reigning over his people. And ascending back to heaven, he sits at the right hand of God as the perfect intercessor now for his people. For those who believe that truth, that reality, that fact of who Christ is and what he has done, trusting him to be the sacrifice that brings forgiveness of God, then for them, Paul says, he is the hope of glory. That is to say, our lives have been united to his in such a way that the hope we have is of a future heaven with God forever. But Paul says more than just this gospel for the Jews, the gospel is now for all people. The promises given through the Jews were meant to explode from them to all the peoples of the earth so that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah, he is the global Savior. This is the mystery that was hidden, that blew the minds of the Jews in the first century. Just read Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 
And you'll see that they, they're struggling. They're con- Even Peter. He, he's given this vision. Go to this Gentile. And he's like, what in the world are you talking about? And God gives him this vision of clean and unclean animals. And just by association, he cannot have anything to do with those clean animals because they've been on the same blanket as the unclean animals. And God is telling him, rise, take a knife, kill and eat. And Peter's going to throw up in his mouth. He's like, ah, oh, I can't do that. They're unclean. And, and God tells him again, take, kill, and eat. He's like, why? What does that mean? God, why would you have me break your law like that? And so there's a knock on the door. It's, and it's, and it's, it's a man saying, this dude Cornelius had a vision from God, and he says, you know the way of salvation. Come and talk to him. And Peter has to go, and he's just confused. Like, what am I doing here? He's like, well, tell me about this vision. And, and, and he begins to explain who Jesus Christ is, and suddenly the Spirit falls on Cornelius and on those who have heard Peter preach the gospel and believe. And Peter kind of stands back. He's like, well, hey, I guess they're saved now, just like us Jews. Might as well baptize them. And that's what they do. It, 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 takes, this, it takes this experience to get, to get it around Peter's mind that Christ is not just for the Jews. He's for the Gentiles. And that's why Paul very specifically says, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Thus, for the Colossians, the once Gentile pagans, they are now part of the people of God. So Paul is saying, I have this ministry, this focus of proclaiming the word, of, of serving the word to people. And now he says that the, 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 the kind of focusing lens of that ministry comes in proclaiming the word fully in such a way that Christ is exalted. It's in drawing together the threads of the storyline of the Bible to form the tapestry of the glorious gospel of salvation in Christ. And so we have this as a mark of Christian ministry. It is not complete until the word of God is made known and the focus of that, that making known is Christ himself. And he tells us why he does that. He says, this is why I make known the word and I proclaim Christ. It is, he says, to, to disciple the church. It is to disciple the church. That's the third thing we see from verse 28. There Paul says, him we proclaim, that is Christ him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, sometimes we think of, when we think about discipleship, we think about Bible study and um, growing people who are already established in the church. In fact, when you go to conferences or you read websites, you almost find, unfortunately, pastors who have this kind of driving passion that, that, divides Christian ministry into two things. Evangelism, bringing people into the church, or discipleship, growing people who are already in the church. You find pastors saying, well, we've got to be discipling, we've got to be discipling. You find other pastors saying, well, we've got to evangelize, we've got to evangelize. And the problem is, biblically speaking, looking at the New Testament, there is no division there. Now, in one sense there is, but in another sense there isn't. To make disciples includes both evangelism and growth of those who are evangelized. Paul never divided the two because Jesus never did. You read the Gospels, what does he say? He just says, follow me. Follow me. Sometimes he just looks at someone and, and, and you, you, know, you think about Matthew, this guy who was you know, not loved by the Romans or the other Gentiles because he was a Jew, not loved by the Jews because he was a tax collector. And so the Jews felt like he was betraying his own people and he's sitting there counting out the monies and Jesus just walks up to him, looks him in the eye, probably with a smile and says, follow me. 
Now, what does Matthew do? He gets up and he leaves the table behind and he follows Jesus. Was that evangelism or was that discipleship? It's both. It's both because Jesus, those that he called to those that he called to follow him, he called to be his disciples. And in fact, as you read the Gospels, that's what they're called over and over again. The disciples, the disciples, the disciples. He didn't call people who already believed. He called sinful people who were spiritually lost, living apart from God, to be his disciples, to follow him. And in doing so, they were to leave everything behind, learning his teaching, imitating his life, becoming a people who loved him more than the world. So so much so that after his resurrection from the dead, uh, securing the, the, the means by which he could gather people to himself and present them before God, he, what does he say to the church? Keep doing what I did. Make disciples. And so Paul is trying to obey that command. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So what is Paul doing? Paul is preaching Jesus, and in doing so, he is calling people to repent of their sins, warning them of the coming judgment, telling them about Christ, so they might believe and live different lives, wisely applying God's truth. Who is that message for? It's for everyone. It's for everyone. Those that have trusted Christ for 10 years or those who 10 minutes before had never heard of him. Paul is out there seeking to make disciples, preaching the wholeness of God's word with a focus on Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. That's going to look different between someone who has never heard about Christ 10 minutes ago and those that have heard about Christ 10 years ago. At least in some ways it'll look different. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to get on the guy who just heard about Christ because he's not a teacher. But for the person who's been saved for 10 years, uh, the author of Hebrews gets pretty rough. And he says, you guys are like babies still messing your diaper, drinking bottles. You should be feeding other people the bottle. Come on. He says, get with it, man. So, so yes, in terms of approach, some, something different, yes. And yet in terms of message and plan and strategy and ministry, the same. You are making disciples, whether for the first time or by, or by growing them. You are seeking, like Paul, to present everyone mature in Christ. What that means that is maturity is not some kind of uh, specific uh, ministry for a small group of God's people. There aren't this, this kind of, this kind of uh, first-tier class of Christians, and boy, they're the mature ones. They're the ones who, who go hard after God, and they are, the, they are the real disciples. No. There, there's no one who claims the name of Christ, who heard the, the command, follow me, and obeyed, who can be lazy when it comes to their spiritual growth, who can sit and say, well, I don't feel called to be engaged in ministry. Paul says, that, that's ridiculous. Everyone, everyone is to be maturing in Christ. His goal is to teach the word, proclaiming the Son, warning about errors of false belief and sinful living, so that he can wisely show people what life looks like when it's lived in a way that is meant to be lived by faith in Christ for the glory of Christ. So two questions for us naturally follow. The first is simply this, are you seeking to be mature in Christ? Have you put your feet up on the chair, hit the hit the the autopilot button, and are just kind of waiting things out? Or are you seeking to do what Christ calls you to do, and that is mature in Him? It's not without reason that His people are called disciples. They are to learn and obey everything that He commands. That means if we really are His disciples, though the progress may be slow, 
though we may fall into ditches and potholes and be run off the rails, the long-term trajectory of our life is one of growth in Christ, an ever-deepening relationship with him that results in an ever-changing life. The second question you have to ask yourself is this. As a disciple of Christ, are you actively involved in helping others be discipled and mature in him? God doesn't save anybody to be a spiritual cul-de-sac. He, he, he never intends to save someone and have them sit in a pew or in a chair or in a, in, a, in a Bible study class or in a small group or at their own table by themselves drinking coffee, just soaking up and soaking up and soaking up the labor and ministry of others and never doing anything with it. In that sense, all of us are meant to be a highway from God's grace to others. It, it, the grace is not meant just to kind of pull up in us. It is meant to bubble up and overwhelm us and overflow from us so that we become the conduits of God's grace from him to others, being involved in this work of both bringing a message of salvation to God's people and that message of salvation that not only brings them to faith in God, but matures them in their faith in God. I have to confess, I hate the term full-time Christian ministry. I haven't quite figured out what what to use yet, but I I hate that phrase because it's, it's not biblical. You read Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, and you come tell me you are not called as a Christian, as a disciple, to be involved in ministry. Can't do it. All of God's people, as disciples, are called to make disciples. That doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, I think this is the reason why people don't do it. It's not easy. It's work. It is hard and messy and painful. But that's our calling. That's our calling. And if we follow Paul's example, then we will work hard at it. We will labor for people. That's the fourth thing that we see. Christian ministry means laboring for people. Paul says that his goal is to present everyone mature in Christ for this, he says, for this goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ, for this, verse 29, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The word we have in English as toil is much the same in Greek. It's the kind of work where at the end of the day you've lost a couple of pounds in sweat, your muscles feel like they're going to explode, and all you want is a bed. Everybody work like that? That's how Paul says he labored every day for the sake of others. The word struggle is more intense. It's the word from which we get our English word agony. Imagine Rocky Balboa going the distance with Apollo Creed. At the end of the day, he is just, he's just, I mean, I, mean, I don't know, you know, a lot of people, they watch the first Rocky movie, they don't, they don't get it. He didn't win at the end, okay? Uh, you know, he, he loses. The point is, he went the distance. He survived with a heavyweight champion every single round and never went down. He never was dealt the knockout punch. He survived. He was a mess. I mean, you know, he's got Mickey... His, his uh, manager, he says, my, you know, his eyes are swelled shut. And what does he say? He says, you got to cut me, Mick. you got to cut me. You know, in other words, cut his eyelids open so the blood spurts out. They'll stop being swelled up and he actually see the guy he's supposed to be boxing. Okay? You know, he doesn't look real pretty at the end. And for some reason, you know, Adrian still hugs him and kisses him. And you're just thinking, you know, take a shower first or something. You know, kind of clean yourself up, you know. He did it. It was agonizing, but he did it. And Paul says, that's what I do when I labor for people. 
I toil and I struggle. I agonize for them. Why? Because it's not a program. It's not just this vague ministry. It is people that he is seeking to invest in. He is seeking to what? Present everyone, every person, a body, a human being, mature in Christ. His goal is to see individuals to know and to take delight in and to grow in their relationship with God. And that is our calling as well. You know, it, it is all well and good to clean the church. And I'm thankful for those of you that do that. I'm thankful for those that, that help print the bulletin and upkeep the website. But guess what? Our calling is more than just those things. It is a calling to people ministry. It could be as simple as meeting with your neighbor for 8 to 12 weeks and reading through the gospel of Mark with them, showing them who Jesus is and praying all the while that they would get saved. It might be an older woman who's had children and grandchildren getting together with a new, new mom and, and, and reading and praying to the Beatitudes so that, so that she can help disciple her and know how to be a godly parent and wife. It might be two teenagers getting together to read and pray through First Peter so they will see what it means to live as aliens and strangers in a sinful, corrupt world and to, to hoist their flags clear before their friends that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. It could be and should be a father sitting down with his wife and children, reading through the Gospels with them, explaining who Jesus is, showing he is worthy of their faith. And their lives should be changed because of it. It might be easy as doing something like that, or it might be difficult. It might be sitting with that person, reading the Word of God to them as they die in the hospital bed. It might be uh, talking to a hardened sinner in prison. It might be going with uh, somebody else when they know that their family member has one foot in the grave and it's their parent and they don't know God. However it looks, in the midst of being tired and frustrated and distracted, you don't give up. You toil and you struggle because your aim is to see people mature in Christ. Now at this point in the message, you may be saying, um, I feel conviction. I feel like I should be doing this, but I have no idea how to go about that. I don't know how to, to live that kind of life. I don't know how to have that kind of focus to what I am supposed to do. Well, take heart because Paul tells us. He is a man just like us. He himself struggled and toiled. He was not always in good spirits. He did not always walk around with a smile on his face. In fact, he tells us that there was one problem that he had. They repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly begged God take away because of the suffering that it involved. Yeah, he never gave up. Why? Listen to what he says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. God. It's God. He said something similar in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? How? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Loved ones, this is where most of our struggle, most of our confusion in both theology and practice comes down to, and that is this relationship between God and his sovereign power and us and our human weakness and responsibility. And far too often we elevate God's sovereignty and power to the point we think we don't do anything. We do nothing. We just sit back and we let go and let God and just, things just happen. And we don't have anything to do with it. 
We're not praying. We're not working. We're not striving. We just say, God, save that person, and somehow miraculously they're going to get saved. Or we, we devalue the sovereignty and the power of God and elevate human responsibility and effort to the point that suddenly we're not dependent upon God for anything. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen because I get it done. Therefore, I have to work hard and struggle and labor and press on. And Paul says, it is neither. It is neither option. He says, I work hard because God is at work in me and through me. So, so, so it's not circumventing what I do. It's not circumventing my wisdom and my thinking and my actions and my money. It is God working in those things to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. It is a reliance on God's power and sovereignty that should never undermine our effort, but rather encourage it. We can never say, well, God will do it and I'll take it easy. No. No, not at all. We never have an excuse to be lazy in ministry because it is, it is God's power that is demonstrated in our effort and our labors. Paul said he toiled because God's power was released in him and through him, enabling him to accomplish what he otherwise would not have been able to accomplish. Listen to how J.I. Packer explains it. The Holy Spirit's ordinary way of working in us is through the workings of our own minds and wills. He moves us to act by causing us to see reasons for moving ourselves to act. Thus our conscious, rational selfhood, so far from being annihilated, is in fact strengthened. And in reverent, resolute obedience, we work out our salvation knowing God is at work in us to make us both will and work for his good pleasure. In other words, if, if you're really a spirit-filled person, you, know, you should not expect necessarily to see all the shenanigans on Christian television. Okay? Just because I got up here and say, well, 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 that does not mean I'm spirit-filled, Okay? If I'm rolling around the floor barking like a dog or walking down to the aisles slapping you on the head and making you fall down, that, that is not an indication of being spirit-filled. An indication of being spirit-filled is when someone comes at you with an attack. They slander you. And your first response is not to give it back to them. But to say, I'm secure in Christ. Their opinion really doesn't matter. And you pray for your enemies and you love them. Or when you're meeting with somebody and they begin asking these hard questions and you're thinking, man, I don't know the answer to these things. This person is never going to get saved because of me, so I'm bailing. And you say, no, those are all great questions. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand it and I will go find some resources. And you persevere in the midst of your weakness. Not ashamed of your weakness, but humble in it and confident that God is still going to work. It's that kind of working in us and not working despite us in which God reveals his power in us. The reliance on the power of God enabled Paul not to levitate off the floor or fly or spin circles, but he was able to press on. Despite frustration, despite pain, despite sorrow, despite slander, despite poverty, Paul toiled and struggled for people. And he did it even to the point of suffering. This is the last thing that we see. It should be a mark of Christian ministry. We should rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in suffering. 
By presenting Christ to the ministry of the word, Paul's aim is to preach the gospel so that sinners are saved and saved and the saved are sanctified so that he may present everyone mature in Christ. He labored for this, but he goes even further. In fact, he tells us just how much he loves Christ and his people by declaring from the very beginning of this section that he rejoices in his suffering. We dealt with this last because you're not going to understand why he can rejoice unless we've heard the rest of what we just heard. How can he rejoice? It's because of the calling that he has. The fact that, that he has this, this declaration, to, uh, this commission to preach Christ. And he does that because he wants to see people mature in, 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 uh, in Christ and to, to be uh, knowing him, to be known by him. And he struggles and he labors for that. And what's the result? The result is, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, we, we have to spend some time here, don't we? Because um, if, you're, if you're at all familiar with Christian theology, your first gut reaction is to say, what in the world does that mean? I was talking with, I was reading through this with somebody this week, and we were sitting at the coffee shop, and I said, you know, uh, I told him, I said, I was having a hard time putting together the outline. I understood the passage, but to outline it and present it. And I said, so what, what do you think? And, and he reads verse 24, and he says, I don't know, but you've got to tell me what that means, because right now it's looking pretty bad. Uh, it's looking like Paul's a heretic. And, and to be honest, if, if we just treat the Bible like the, uh, the, the little strips of paper we get in the Chinese fortune cookies, then yeah, it's going to look bad. Uh, because what it means is we've not read it in context. We've not seen the whole arc of Paul's argument so far of what he is saying. We've not seen where he is going, where he has been. Do you realize that just a few verses ahead of this, Paul spent uh, in an ordinate amount of time an amazing uh, argument showing the very opposite thing you might think he's saying here, and that is there is no lack of sufficiency in Christ. Christ is all you need. And if you try and add something to him, then you're sadly mistaken that you're going to get something more. He is all that you need. He is supreme and he is sufficient. So what is he saying? He is not denying Christ's last words on the cross. It is finished. There is no more debt to pay. There is no more atonement to be made. It is complete in him. So what does he mean? What is, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? is not that they are deficient in worth or merit as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. Rather, what is lacking is, is the infinite, uh, or what is not lacking is the infinite value of Christ's afflictions for the world. What is lacking is that, those, that infinite value of his afflictions are not known by everyone in the world. Not everyone has heard the gospel of Christ. Not everyone sees and hears and understands what Christ's afflictions were and what they accomplished. To them, they are still a hidden mystery. But they are a mystery waiting to be revealed as the gospel goes forth to them. So Paul is saying, even in the first century, as he is seeking to reveal the mystery of Christ... The afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among the peoples he is going to. They must be carried there by him and other ministers of the word. Therefore, those ministers fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by enduring afflictions themselves and therefore putting on display in their bodies the afflictions of Christ for sinners. 
And if we go through the New Testament, we see that there is such a close association between the sufferings of Christ for his people and his people for himself, that this makes sense. In Acts chapter 9, the risen Christ says those that are persecuting the church are in fact persecuting him. Paul himself is commissioned as an apostle and told that he must suffer much. Why? Says Paul, I, 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 he needs to, Jesus says he needs to know how much he will suffer for my sake. Why? Because it is through the sufferings of Paul, the temporal, physical, personal sufferings of Paul, that the eternal, physical, atoning sufferings of Christ are made real to people who have not heard the gospel. Paul says he does this for the church. He suffers for the sake of God's people, even for the Colossians. He's never been to Colossae. What does that mean? Paul suffered that the gospel might go forward. That gospel went forward in the life of Epaphras, who heard it, who believed, and took it back to Colossae. Therefore, Paul directly suffered for even the Colossians. His current sufferings were meant to be an encouragement to them in their struggles and in their sufferings that they might endure and even rejoice in them as he did. Dr. Helen Rosevere served as a missionary doctor for many years in Zaire, Africa. For over 12 years, she served in tiring but happy times as the only doctor in an area of half a million people. That changed, though, in 1964 when the revolution began overtaking the country. And for five months, she and her co-workers endured brutality and torture. At one time, Dr. Rosevere was on the verge of being executed, and a student, only 17 years old, tried to stand up for her and come to her defense and was severely beaten for it. Kicked and spit on like a dog in front of her, and in that moment, she wept, she crumbled, and she felt abandoned by God. And as that fear of abandonment welled up within her, so did the power of God's Spirit, reminding her, overwhelming her with a sense of His presence. Dr. Rosevere says in that moment she felt as if God were saying to her, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, the privilege of being with me. These are not your sufferings. They are my sufferings. And she goes on to say, in the midst of that moment, in a, in a way that is only possible in Christ, a moment that was both terrible and blessed, she felt a profound sense of privilege in her sufferings. Her sense of union with Christ and of knowing the fellowship of his sufferings caused her to rejoice. Loved ones, the, the task of Christian ministry is not just for those that would stand behind this, this pulpit. It's not for those who have their names and their faces on a website under the title pastor or elder. It is not for those who will be called deacons in the church of God. It is for every disciple of Jesus Christ. Every disciple is to be involved in making disciples, both bringing people into the church as well as seeing them grow and mature in Christ. And Paul sets the pattern for how this is meant to go. And from proclaiming the word about Christ to laboring for people, even enduring toil and sweat, we can know the power of the risen Christ strengthening us so that even when we suffer, even when we suffer 
to make his sufferings known, we can rejoice in the work of the gospel that he's called us to. Father, we are thankful for the message of Jesus Christ. We are thankful that it not only saves us, but God, it motivates us to serve you. God, we pray that you would give us here today those that know you, those that have put their faith in Christ, those that have answered the call of Christ, follow me, that we would indeed be following him, not only in ourselves growing and maturing in him, but seeking to help others grow and mature in him as well. Father, as we sing this song, may we dedicate ourselves to that work of disciple-making. And Father, by the power that, that you work within us, may we take joy even in the difficulties that it brings. In response to the message this morning, I invite you to stand and sing with us on your mission. Send us.